Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Louise Park. Louise is an author who writes under her own name as well as several nom de plumes. Louise's books include uh, book series include Zach Power, Harriet Clare, and The D-Bot Squad. Louise has also worked in education and publishing. She's a literacy expert whose work sees her run the gamut of schools, conferences, and festivals, discussing education and advocating for literacy skills and development. Now, today, Louise is joining me to discuss her latest book, Seven Steps to Get Your Child Reading. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to that land. Their stories are the original stories. Now, Final Draft, we explore the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture as featured on 2SER. The Great Conversations podcast, well, it's a chance for you to hear more of these discussions, the bits that don't make it to air. Louise Park's Seven Steps to Get Your Child Reading takes on the challenge of helping engage Generation Alpha, the first generation born with devices in their hands and uh, encouraging their skills of reading. The book shares insights, research and strategies for helping maximise children's developing literacy as they grow. With increased screen time, a growing challenge and declining literacy rates across the country, it's especially directed at the current generation – the children who have these unique challenges of developing their literacy skills in a digital world. So join me and help a young reader in your life as we discover Louise Park's Seven Steps to Get Your Child Reading. I'm here. I'm going to welcome to the show Louise Park. Louise is an author who writes under her own name as well as several nom de plumes. <laughs> Louise's books, uh, book series include Zach Power, Harriet Clare and the D-Bot Squad. There's, there's a lot, but I, you know... I want to get to some questions. Louise has also worked in education and publishing. She's a literacy expert whose work sees her run the gamut of school conferences and festivals discussing, educating and advocating for literacy skills and development. And she's here today uh, because her new book is called Seven Steps to Get Your Child Reading. Welcome, Louise. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to getting into this because, uh, well... Look, if you're a regular Final Draft listener, you know that meeting authors, well, that's the thing we do around here. But today, Louise and I, we're not going to discuss the finer points of plot and theme or the cross-cultural ramifications of her alternative worlds. We're taking it back a step and focusing on the skills that allow us to visit these wonderful worlds. Louise's latest book is entitled Seven Steps to Get Your Child Reading, and it is a guide, a companion, and a resource for anyone interested in helping young readers develop their skills and love for reading. Now, Louise, many of us, and I'm sure a large proportion of Final Draft listeners, reading, it's a thing that we do a lot and often Mm. unconsciously. Like many skills we develop as children, we may not ever examine the process that got us to the point where our eyes only need drift across words to read them. But reading is a set of skills and a process that we engage in. The way I learned looked different to my parents' education, and even if you just finished high school, the ways you learned and the challenges you faced look different to kids entering school today. So I want to start, Louise, who are Generation Alpha and why do we need to address their reading development specifically. Okay, Generation Alpha are the children born between 2010 and 2030, roughly. So these are the children who are born with devices in their hands. They're the pincher, tapper, swiper cohort. And as a result of that, the goalposts have shifted for them and for their families. And they're most at risk of struggling with literacy development. 
Okay. How do we know that they're most at risk? What are we What are we seeing? Because you've mentioned up to 2030. So we're talking about kids that might not be conceived for another eight years. But what are we seeing on the ground? Mm, so on the ground at the moment, we're seeing, so we've got um, up to 10-year-olds in schools. And as you will know from all of the media, our literacy levels are, are dropping. And they they are dropping in correlation with a higher use of technology. And technology, I want to say, is a fabulous thing and I use it every day. It's about the balance and restoring that balance between technology and traditional modes of learning to read Mm. and just restoring that balance in the home. Okay, we're going to put the fox in the technology house in a few minutes, but (laughs) I wanted to just come back to that sense we often have that these skills we learn in childhood just kind of happened. Do we need to focus in on reading? Will it? Won't it just naturally happen? Oh, isn't that interesting? Because uh, it, it's easy to think that way because we learn to talk by osmosis. If you just surround a child with lots and lots of language, they start to, they just start to miraculously talk. So if you surround a child with lots and lots of books, they'll start to miraculously read, won't they? But that actually isn't the case. I mean, there are there are children who will miraculously start to read. They are going to read anyway, no matter. Who teaches them what? They're the lucky ones, but they're not the bulk of children who learn that way. So the bulk of children really need explicit teaching. And the thing that I find really interesting is that we are an oral society. We've been talking and telling stories and using speech for 60,000 years. We've only been writing and reading for the last 5,000 years. So in fact, our brain is using um, areas that have been developed to talk, we're repurposing those areas of the brain to learn to read. And we're still evolving. All of us, we're still evolving that that centre. We don't have a designated centre in our brain just for reading. Okay, so we can feel pretty safe here in talking about reading as a, as a technology. Uh, it didn't take Gutenberg rubbing ink on a wood block. It didn't take, uh, well, it, it did. It started with us picking up something and inscribing something onto another surface. And look, Mm. here on Final Draft, we don't typically draw too much ire from the audience, but I have a feeling this next topic is going to raise some pretty strong views. (laughs) The question of technology, screen time and kids raises eyes even in the most polite circles. Mm. Why do we need to think about screen time in relation to learning? Well, the research is out now. And it's indisputable. There are areas of your brain that light up when you're using pencils and when you're writing and putting letters together, putting letters together to make words, putting words together to make sentences. That doesn't happen when you're on a keyboard or on a device. Those areas of the brain don't light up. So we can't replicate what is taking place with writing and reading and scribing on paper using your hands and and pencils by using technology alone and that is having an effect writing and reading are like breathing in and breathing out you don't get one without the other and i think the worry is that these children are pinching and swiping and not scribbling as much i want to come back to writing uh but before we leave tech alone i want to hone in on one particular element of tech usage that you discuss now i was getting my notes ready uh before you arrived at the studio 
and I realized I just wanted to check the confirmation in my email. So I pulled out my phone because it's just easier to get to my email. Mm. And then a notification popped down and I quickly tapped on it. And then I quickly just flicked through to social media. And in the space of like the 30 seconds that took to do, I actually, I completely forgot. And I never looked at the email that I was actually going to find. What is mm. continuous partial attention and how does it impact not just kids but their adults? It's adults as well. So mm. there are there are there are kind of two prongs to it. I mean, you're there's the multitasking element where you're doing several things at once like you. And so you're a competent reader. We don't have to worry about you. You can do as many multitasking things as you like. You may well forget something that you were working on earlier because your brain is trying to split across a number of tasks. That are not autopilot tasks. It's not the same as putting the washing on and biting a sandwich and picking up the phone because they're more autopilot tasks. Mm. But actually doing something that requires your brain to to engage and read and to create or whatever across several tasks all at once is 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 very, very demanding for a child's brain. Okay. And look, there are going to be people listening on their phones who were also checking Instagram, maybe uh, responding to someone on Facebook. So let's go through it again. Continuous Mm. partial attention is where that attention is being divided in impractical and and less functional ways. Mm. What are the impacts going to be then, Mm. not just on the children, but on the adults who are sort of trying to be there for the children? What are the kids going to get out of a continuously partially divided adult? (laughs) Uh, they're going. They're going to lose. Yeah. They're going to totally lose. And in in even the most simplest way, eye contact mm. so important. They are going to lose out. So all of those social, all of those social things that we just take for granted, are being taken off the ball, off the table, if you like. So a child could be there talking away while while the person that they're with is on their phone doing several other things, they're not going to get the quality response that they would normally get. And I mean, how many times I've, I've done it. I've, I I just sat with my publicist and was texting and she said something and because I was texting and then I said, sorry, what did you say? And I was listening, but I thought, no, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And I even made the comment that I'm actually doing what I shouldn't do <laughs> and I put my phone away. So you think you can get away with it, but actually you can't. And it's probably worth clarifying here that when we talk about the social element, we're not for a second denying the way technology allows us to be social and keep in mm. touch with people across the world. Mm. It's when we're trying to do both at once, mm. and especially around children, mm. children mm. Who, who soak up so much of that input. Yeah, yeah mm. that's exactly right. I mean, technology, social media, we use it. We're all going to use it. We all love it. But let's put some boundaries around it. Mm. I was... Very shocked when I was doing a lot of the research for this book. The thing that actually staggered me the most was that in hospitals, when a, a mother is having, a, you know, a couple are having a new baby, one of the things in the, you know, in the in the kit that you, they send them home with is make sure you talk to your child. Who would have thought we'd gotten to this point where we would actually have to remind an adult that you have to talk? To the child, like that's that's where it's come, and they're talking about this, you know, distraction on phones and stuff. Mm. So, and one of the and one of the facts in that book is that um, the size of a child's vocabulary when they arrive at school is one of the strongest indicators of how well they will learn to read. And so, if they're not getting that that talking and that engagement and the eye contact and all of those things, they're not going to get the vocabulary that they need. They can pick up 
lots of words from TV, sure. But like anything, it's not the same. Yeah, and I want to throw out here another fantastic book that people who are thinking of picking up Seven Steps might want to read. I read this a couple of years ago. It's called 30 Million Words, the author's Dana Susskind. And it actually looks at that, that uh, the way language acquisition occurs and what happens in those early years that take mm. us into those early school days. And mm. 30 Million Words, the title comes from the gap between mm. children yeah. that are getting, I guess, the sufficient yep. attention that yep. they need yep. uh, and, and not... But let's not move too far away yeah. from from what we're talking about. Um, and yes, talking talking to kids is so important. Amongst the steps, you as uh, you discuss talking, you discuss writing. Yes, you discuss book ownership. Yes, these seem very different to the, the the process of reading. Can we talk here about the holistic? I know these are messages that I really want to get across and. I've tried to make the book as simple and accessible as possible because I think every parent wants to do the best by their child and knowledge is everything. If they know that these things actually matter, it doesn't take much to address them. So um, I think that's really powerful. But but these are the messages that they don't pick up. So there was a big movement in the 80s, read to your child, from birth, read to your child. So we all read to our children and we all know the benefits of reading aloud to your child from from birth and that has made a very big impact. But there are other things. I think I was a beneficiary of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. (laughs) And you're a reader. Um, But there are other things as well that, that, that they need to know and that they can just incorporate into their life so easy, easy as pie. So they did a 20-year longitudinal study of what what were the factors that would influence how far a child could go educationally, what, what, would, what would influence their educational attainment. And at the end of the 20 years, they're expecting the, the standard findings, you know, parents with um, a profession, parents with a university degree or, you know, financial things or demographics and stuff like that no the 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 top and the thing that came out way above everything else was having books in the home Mm. and that impact i mean it's such a simple thing Mm. that impact is incredible so just having they said even just up to 20 books of any kind in the home Mm. books or magazines that you might have read books that they have themselves that that understanding that books Books are important. Books are valued. Books need to have the same um, respect in the home as toys and gadgets and devices and electronic games, that these things are are tools that will take you far. Even if they're not reading constantly on a day-to-day basis, just having those things in the home Mm. can make such a difference. And, of course, then if you take it further and... You know, just go to the library, get a whole pile of books. They're in the home for three or four weeks. Let the child just revisit the books again and again and again and again. You don't have to do much there. And it's just going to make such a powerful difference to their lives. Now, I I was actually familiar before I read your book with this idea of book ownership and and literacy outcomes. But one thing you, you taught me and that kind of surprised me a little bit was the ownership also has to be in the as part of the agency and uh, the work of the child like the children need to own books and 20 is the magic number I think you say in the book around about 20 20 was the magic number that came out of the study Mm. Um, I don't know why but 20 was the magic number that came out of the study but definitely agency is is key I mean we all know that if, if, if we're in the driver's seat and we're choosing something that we really want to read, we are going to stick with it more so than something else. 
that's just been given to us. We're also, you know, we might read a few chapters. If it doesn't grab us, we can go and skip to something else as long as we go and skip to something else. But giving giving the child the power and getting them to invest in the process makes them a reader. Mm. And it, it, it also teaches them how they find what it is they want to read. Mm. So I have a girl and a boy and my girl um, is classically non-fiction reader and everybody sort of for some reason expects that girls will love fiction and boys will be non-fiction. Mine are absolutely the other way. Um, and that's something that, you know, I, I could see that straight away and she was just gravitating more and more and more to non-fiction stuff and she still today is a non-fiction reader. I could get her to read some fiction things um, but I would have to be very, very choosy about them and I would have to involve her in the process because otherwise, you know, she just wasn't interested. Mm. Now, I bet there are going to be lots of people who are starting to problematise this in their thoughts. You know, if, if kids need to own books and they need to have maybe this magic number of 20, that's actually going to cause problems for um, parents in different socioeconomic areas, yes. um, the ability to, to purchase and buy. But, I mean, we might throw some links up on the on the website, but... That doesn't have to be the case. We have no. We have on the show spoken to organisations like Street Library Australia. Yep. There are lots of ways to gain yep. access to these books. Lots and lots of ways. Uh, Dimix Children's Charities is getting into schools that are more socially disadvantaged and they are allowing the children, they, they're giving books and they're allowing the children to pick and choose from massive piles of books what 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 they want and they just take them away and they own them so there's plenty of um organizations that are doing things like that and i have listed in my book several other ways to go about it garage sales um secondhand bookstores um the salvation army just has stacks and stacks and stacks of books where Mm. you can just you can just pick them up um other families you know pass them on if children have grown out of them and they're done with them, pass them on, share them around. Mm. And, of course, local libraries. So there are, there are lots of ways. You, it doesn't have to cost a lot. But I do I do explain that for $10, like, you get a lot of bang for your book. Mm. So, you know, $10, uh, $20 well, is a packet of cigarettes, $10 is two coffees. You know, every now and then, $10, a lot of bang for your book. <laughs> that was a pun worth repeating. <laughs> Now, even though Seven Steps is is not a novel in the traditional or, or in any sense, Louise, you have managed to inject it with an element of drama as we enter the third really? act. Oh yeah, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't fail but to notice as we enter. <laughs> I've the been dramatic. Third, the third act, you draw us into the reading wars. Oh yeah, that can be mm. dramatic. Yeah. Now, again, as, as competent everyday readers, many of us don't examine, let alone draw swords in any sort of conflict around reading. Ah, oh, you need to... Me- oh, no, there, there are parents who are definitely drawing swords. And you note that many parents won't encounter this philosophical battle till their children begin school. Mm. So what are the reading wars and why do we need to engage in this discussion? Ch- uh, parent, parents of children, there, there, there is a very big movement of parents that are trying to uh, revolutionise the whole home reading thing in schools. They're against home readers. So that's one aspect of it. So basically... Home readers, home readers are the books that get sent home, home and yeah. they're, they're graded up. So if you yeah, are a parent, you've probably leveled. got a, a number grade level yeah, that you're or you told. Or you read your way through green and then you go to blue and then you go to yellow and they're... Um, mm. 
they're not phonetically based books and they're just level leveled readers so parents of okay let's let's step back a bit <laughs> when children are learning to read um they need several things. They need to be able to decode, so they need phonological awareness. They also need to be able to comprehend what they're reading. Uh, and in the 80s, there was this big movement to throw out phonics, and it was all about whole language and immerse your child in books, a bit like the if you're immersed in talking, you'll learn to talk, so mm. can the same be said for reading? No. So all this immersion in lovely, rich literature and um, not decoding so much was very much the way to go. There are some brains that are never going to learn that way. They need to learn how to sound out words and, and that's it. There are some brains that might not use um, sounding out words much at all and they will thrive on the whole language approach. At the end of the day, you need both because to decode a word doesn't mean that you're actually reading. It means that you're breaking down the sounds and you're putting them together and you're finding that word and you can say that word. The process of reading is that you're you're drawing meaning from what you read. So if you if you if you're taught to decode when you come across a word that you don't know, you've got a skill set that you can use. If you're immersed in a world of beautiful literature, books, you know how books work, you know that those funny black little things are actually thoughts on paper. You know that you read from left to right. You know that you turn the page. Um, all those wonderful things are important as well. So the two come together to make you a competent reader and a fluent reader. The, the people with children who are, str- are struggling, particularly dyslexic children, really need very carefully contrived phonic readers and they need lots of repetition and they need lots of um, lots of opportunity to lay those new skills down in their brain. So home readers aren't the greatest thing for them. I get that. A child who, who relies on um, phonics only when they come across a word that they don't know, the home readers are going to be fine for them. At the end of the day, the home reader is just a way for the teacher to know that some reading is happening in the home each night. That's one way to get that to happen. If you're going to share a book, no matter what, at least that one's going to happen. Mm. Um, but really, you need to know your child and what your child needs and have that conversation with your teacher. So no magic bullet. Turns out we were all individuals all along. and All individuals all along, no magic bullet. No magic bullet. <laughs> there we go. So before you draw swords in the reading wars, I guess the important uh, the important thing that you're telling us here is that there are a range of skills that go into this thing we call reading, yep. and some people need a little bit more of yeah. one and some a little bit more of the yeah. other as yeah. a part of. And even as adults, we will draw on different skills and we're not even aware of it. So for us, a, a sentence, for example, that has the word tear in it, T-E-A-R, we probably just look straight across that sentence and don't even know we're doing it and know that it's not tear, it's mm. tear. It makes sense. For a young child who is reading, they will come to that word and they'll, they may say tear and think, uh-uh, I don't know, and then they'll go back and read the beginning again and think, uh-uh, I don't know. They'll have to read on to the end of the sentence and think, what's going to make sense there, tear or tear, and then put it in. A younger reader, again, will have to sound out that word T-E-A-R, mm recognize it visually, work out the spoken equivalent for it, 
and they have to get that right. And then they have to put it in the sentence and make sure it makes sense so that they can get some meaning from the sentence. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot going on. And I mean, we can find out more about it. Um, I am speaking with Louise Park and the book is Seven Steps to Get Your Child Reading. There is a lot of great ideas for resources. And also, I think if if you're a parent and you happen to be listening, there are ideas of maybe some of the questions you might be asking yourself and the questions you might want to start asking teachers if you have concerns about your child. Um, So, look, Louise, I I remember (laughs) it was not long after the final Harry Potter book was published in the series. Were you a Harry Potter fan? No, I, knew, I didn't get into it to write, oh. to write at the end. Maybe just a little too old. Oh, my son was so addicted. And the series, they began, <laughs> they, they began to be reissued in darker, more sort of mature-looking formats for adults who, who wanted to read it but not be seen as reading a kid's book. You take a quick glance at the hashtag love OzYA um, uh, or just the YA section of any bookstore. Walk into bookstores every day if you can. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see there's a wealth of reading for all ages to enjoy. So I, I thought, well, why don't we end on a really big positive that I took out of your book. Adopting the seven steps, helping children to read, and they don't have to be your kids. Borrow a nephew or a niece. Babysit for a friend. It opens up a world of stories and art. We forget about the beautiful mm, illustration. Yeah. Actually, quick shout out uh, to oh, I know. Nell May Pierce. Who, Nell May Pierce, who has just had a Jenna baby. <laughs> uh, who has done the beautiful illustrations in Seven Steps. But it opens up this world of stories and art that we as adults, we don't allow ourselves to explore often enough, if at all. Mm. What have you discovered, Louise, in your literacy journey? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Short version. <laughs> in terms of my reading or in terms of what I see in schools? I think, that, I think your journey sort of working with kids. In, in producing a book like this, you have worked with so many children at an individual, a class, a group level. Um, have they taught you anything? What What have you discovered reading oh my goodness. with the kids? They teach me every single day and they continue to teach me. And I'm blown away by what goes on in their little minds. Mm. I really am. And I love it. And I think one of the things that I have learned as a children's author is that I had no idea the power of a children's author in front of an audience of children. Mm. I'm just staggered. And in your intro, you said that I was a Zach Power author. I'm actually, I wrote Zach Power, all the Zach Power test drives Mm. and spy recruits. And there are several of us who write under that pseudonym of H.I. Larry. So there's about six of us. I had no idea that he was so big in mm. schools, like no idea. And when I go into schools, it's like I'm a rock star. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. And to see kids running up to me and quoting things from my books and stuff that, you know, I might have written those books 10 years ago and I can't even remember them, but, they're you know, they're like Boy vs. Beast, they're telling me all the family tree lines and who mutated with what and mm. their brains are just incredible and they're sponges and they love it. So... I would say to parents, I'd love to say to parents, if you see, you know, there's a children's author in the local bookstore or a children's author coming to your local library or a children's author coming to your school and most of those gigs, they may well be free, get your child in front of a children's author, no matter who it is, because it's just so inspiring and it, and it encourages them to read, really does. There we go. This might be a this might be a good time to mention that Sydney Writers Festival program has yeah. just dropped. They have a range of uh, events for children. So this is like 
a perfect opportunity mm. across Sydney to discover that. Um, look, I am speaking with Louise Park. Uh, the book we are discussing is Seven Steps to Get Your Child Reading. I wanted to present this book to you because we read on this show every week but we don't think about that process. And for all the younger readers in your life, for all the readers in your life, I think it's really nice to go back to where it all started and uh, just be a part of that next generation. Louise, thank you so much for the thank opportunity. Thank you for having me, Andrew. That's it for this great conversation with Louise Park. Louise's latest book is Seven Steps to Get Your Child Reading, and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 SER. If you click subscribe in your podcast app, there will be a new Great Conversation for you every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading.